back up just a little bit for context in our scripture reading. We're going to be on page 1085 in your uh, quote-unquote pew Bibles, your chairs, or if you're up in the balcony, you've got a pew. Get your Bibles out, go to page 1085 to hear the Word of God. We're going to start with verse 50, uh, sorry, 42 uh, of Mark 15 to get some context to what's going on. And then uh, the main uh, focus of our passage, our preaching today, will be from 16 verses 1 through 8. Hear now the Word of God. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, the Sanhedrin that had convicted Jesus of, uh, of blasphemy, though he was innocent, he was, all, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he didn't agree with their conviction, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he had learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking, sorry, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. And when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Thanks be to God for his word. There's our brother Ken, who preaches so often. I love that big Bible. It's, good. it's easy to see everything there. Uh, so, I have a question for you, uh, having finished reading that passage. Are you satisfied with the way verse 8 ends? Is that, is that a satisfactory ending? My students often tell me they are unsatisfied with the ending of short stories and books that we read because they want more, right? Mark ends his gospel with, they were afraid. So the question that my students often ask me, will Boo and, or sorry, Scout and Jem ever see Boo Radley again and To Kill a Mockingbird, right? Uh, all the stories that we read, they seem to be unsatisfied with those endings. And I think we tend to... Uh, have that same hungry drive uh, based on a deluge of spin-off TV shows, sequels, prequels, and series that flood our entertainment world today, but may not entirely be isolated to the binging culture in which we live. You may notice in your Bibles uh, that the editors note after verse 8, uh, quote, some of the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 16, verses 9 through 20. Without going into too much scholastic detail about the matter, uh, 
most scholars actually agree that verses 9 through 20 were not original to Mark's gospel. They were not written by John Mark, but were some centuries later added by uh, early Christians in the early church. Uh, it seems that they were actually dissatisfied with the way Mark's gospel ends at verse 8. They were afraid, right? Will the women ever tell the disciples about this good news of the resurrection? Will Jesus physically appear to, the, to them in Galilee as he promised them? The earliest manuscripts of Mark's gospel, undoubtedly written by John Mark, leave us on a cliffhanger with such questions. And the assumption is that the rest of the text was either lost or not yet written before Mark had died. But I actually don't think that should trouble us too much this morning, or in general. Uh, for starters, the other gospel writers, each consistent with his own theology and theme, give us a more detailed and extended narrative of the resurrection, which actually also supports the longer ending that was added to Mark's gospel. Nothing there is actually contradictory to anything in the gospels, or the book of Acts, or the rest of the Bible, for that matter. And so thanks be to God that he has not left us with any room for doubt about the historical flesh and blood resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the record of all the Gospels culminating into this whole truth narrative. Moreover, I think we can be confident that Mark, inspired by the Holy Spirit, actually ended his Gospel at verse 8 intentionally. You might disagree with me, but I think Mark has actually kept in line with his theology and theme here. Uh, a skeptical scholar, Frank Kermode, uh, notes that the ending of Mark at verse 8 is either clumsy or subtle. And no doubt about my preaching to you from this text today, uh, which way I fall in the assessment of that. It is rather subtle and I think very powerful indeed, the way that Mark ends. So he's consistent thematically and theologically with the rest of his gospel. And we can then be satisfied in what God has said and preserved in, from Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's the point he's trying to get across to us throughout the gospel. This is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So we are here given a trustworthy testimony to the resurrection by an empty tomb, a messenger from heaven, and eventually these women who witnessed the resurrected Christ in the flesh. At least from Mark's gospel. We get the other disciples too. So though for a time these women were stifled with fear and joy of the good news, the Lord opened their hearts and their mouths to believe and to bear witness that we too might tell the mighty work of God through Jesus Christ, the Father's beloved Son. Now, if you are taking notes, as my brother Harry is so faithful to do, uh, I don't have a specific outline in the bulletin. I didn't get that to you all early enough, uh, but I do have an outline. So the first point I'm going to make here is that there is a sort of heart failure and a disbelief in the gospel. So that's our first point, a heart failure. The second point is the power of God to resurrect the dead and the faithfulness of the scriptures. And the third and final point is a trustworthy testimony that we have from the witnesses of the resurrection. So those are my three points that we'll get to today. So point number one, the love that the women disciples had for Jesus, I think we need to know, is undoubted. They had a devotion to Jesus. Mark tells us that they watched as Jesus was crucified and that in 1541, when he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. Filled with grief, some of them followed Jesus uh, and his dead body to the tomb in which they saw him laid and sealed. 
by a giant heavy stone. And after the death of Jesus, the devotion of Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome reaches its climax when they buy expensive spices to anoint his body. Since he was buried in haste before the Sabbath, in keeping with Jewish custom, these women went to the tomb as soon as possible to give their dead, beloved rabbi a proper burial, a proper and honorable burial. That is the devotion and the love that the women had. And these women who so loved Jesus while they ministered to him did not yet believe in an individual resurrection. I think we need to know that very clearly here at this point. This is the heart failure. We read that Mary, Mary, and Salome went to the tomb on the first day of the week, Sunday. That's why we gather together on Sundays of worship, the day that the Lord was resurrected. Not because they anticipated seeing him alive again on the third day, as he promised so many times, but because they kept their Sabbath rest. They rested. They didn't come to the tomb just yet. They rested. And they went very early on the first day of the week when the sun had risen because that was the soonest they could go. And they were expecting to anoint a corpse. That's what their expectation was. When you read the Gospels, do you, I'm asking you directly, do you expect that the disciples readily believed and anticipated Jesus to be resurrected from the dead? They heard him say this so many times. Do you when you read the Gospels, is that the expectation that you have leading up to this point? Now, there's actually a lobby that the resurrection is a hoax based on the counterclaim in that ancient peoples were superstitious and gullible. Simply put, the argument is that the early church believed in fabricated resurrection, uh, a fabricated resurrection of Jesus because they easily believed in anything supernatural, including the dead coming back to life. However, such a notion is totally and utterly unfounded. A noted Roman historian, you may know, uh, Tacitus, describes the Christian belief in the resurrected Christus as, quote, a mis most mischievous superstition. It was not readily believed that the dead are raised from the, the rest of the world. Recorded in Mark 5, a prominent man named Jairus uh, petitioned to Jesus to heal his dying daughter. And on the way, Jesus was delayed. And before he could get there in time, the, the, the young girl had died. And one of the servants of Jairus came up to them and said, don't bother the teacher anymore. Don't bother Jesus anymore. There's nothing he can do for her. She's dead. She's gone. But Jesus encouraged Jairus by saying, do not fear, only believe. This is in Mark 5. When they got to Jairus' house, do you know how the mourners of this dead girl responded to Jesus' assurance that this girl was not actually dead, that he was going to raise her from the dead? They laughed at him. They mocked him. What are you talking about? The dead aren't raised. There's nothing you can do for her. We know that you're a great prophet and whatnot, but she's dead. Done. That's it. No more life. What's more is that when Jesus actually resurrected this girl from the dead, he did resurrect her from the dead, their immediate response was the overwhelming shock and astonishment that Mary, Mary, and Salome had when the angel told them that Jesus had been raised from the dead. They couldn't believe it. They were astounded. In fact, they were filled with terror that this kind of power had been working through Christ. No, the ancient people of Jesus' day were not just skeptical about the dead being able to come back to life. Uh, they were just as skeptical as modern people are today. We come from nothing. We live our weary lives. We strut about this stage, signifying nothing, sound and fury, all that nonsense that Shakespeare didn't believe in a resurrection. And 
we go to nothing. It's it. That's in. All you have left is an epitaph on your gravestone that says when you, die, when you lived, when you were born, and when you died. We'll be long forgotten by the world when we die. And this modern world believes wholeheartedly that that is indeed the end of the story. But it's not the end of the story. This is good news, and it is a good news because it's not the end of the story. But what about Peter and the other disciples, you may ask, right? Surely these disciples that Jesus had frequently told that he was going to resurrect from the dead after three days being killed by the chief priests and the rulers and the Pharisees, surely they expectantly believed Jesus' prediction about his death and resurrection. Of course, no, they did not. Mark notes that their frequent response to Jesus' prediction was that they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. They didn't want to say anything. They didn't want to pry into this, this very mysterious and enigmatic statement that he was going to die and then come back to life in three days. No way. No way. Furthermore, the absence of the disciples at the tomb this early morning in all four Gospels before the women get there, before they get the news, their absence that third day from the crucifixion speaks volumes to us about what they believed about the resurrection of the dead. If they were gullibly expecting a resurrection, they would have been at the tomb immediately, first thing in the morning, on Sunday, with the women, not to anoint a corpse, but to sit and wait for that tomb to open up and Jesus to walk out alive. They did not gullibly believe this. They were hiding on Sunday morning. They were afraid for their lives that they would be caught and crucified for following Jesus. And only some of the women went to the tomb that morning wondering how they would get past the huge stone blocking their way to Jesus' broken body. Okay, this is the expectation of those who loved Jesus. Not just those who hated him, but those who loved Jesus did not expect a resurrection. So why did those who followed Jesus, saw his miracles, heard his teaching and petitions, and identified him as the Christ, not yet, believe in the, not yet believe in the resurrection. In the week leading up to the crucifixion, Jesus teaches us why it is that people do not believe in the resurrection of the dead. In Mark 12, Jesus was questioned by the Sadducees, and if you remember that old song, who are so sad, you see, because they say that there is no resurrection. Authoritatively, Jesus silenced the Sadducees by saying, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And he goes on to tell them, As for the dead being raised, you believe in God. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses and the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. This is the word of Christ about the resurrection. So in short, they did not understand what kind of Messiah he would be, these disciples of Jesus, who would suffer and die for his people and be resurrected again from the dead, as he promised. They had their hearts and minds set on an earthly kingdom rather than a heavenly one. So leading up to the, leading up to the open tomb, this is the expectation of the women and the disciples and the ancient world. The dead are not raised. Recently, uh, my uncle uh, was feeling ill, and uh, without, uh, with that, he thought he had indigestion. Uh, the doctor, however, ordered an angiogram, which actually revealed a 98% blockage in one of his arteries to his heart. You may have thought that life carried on with just a little bit of gas pain, 
But with a careful examination of his heart, something much more serious was taking place. And until the doctors put a stint in his artery to clear the blockage, his heart could have failed at any moment. Why do I say this? I want to point out to you, I think it's well worth examining our own hearts, all right, our own hearts, not our physical hearts, but our hearts and our souls. Now, do you believe the scriptures and the power of God to raise the dead? Do you? If so, be strengthened and encouraged by these scriptures. Exercise your faith through loving obedience and to the commands of Jesus. As I said before, there's a grave prepared for you and for me, and nothing will matter of what we do or say in this world except that we are called alive in Christ Jesus. That's the only thing that will matter. That's the only thing that matters for Sam. That's the only thing that matters for David. That's the only thing that matters for any one of our brothers and sisters who have died in Christ. Are they alive in Christ Jesus? Otherwise, the world will forget us forever. And that's it. We will be under the wrath of God forever. So, I ask you then, if you don't believe, if you do not have a belief in the scriptures and the power of God to raise the dead, you have a blockage in your heart keeping you from saving faith. It's not enough just to have head knowledge of Jesus' death and resurrection. Sure, we can read off a litany. We can uh, do the, the liturgy and all of that good stuff. It's not enough just to have the head knowledge. Okay? That is necessary, but it's not enough. You've got to put your trust in him too. You've got to put your whole heart trusting in Christ that he is the only one who can save us from sin and death forever. Unbelief is not a mere intellectual problem. It's actually a moral problem. And that's what I'm bringing before you today. It's a rejection of the word of God and God's saving power through the gospel. The whole gospel, the death and resurrection of Christ. So I implore you today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Do not harden your hearts. Thanks be to God that the scriptures do not leave us on a cliffhanger as to whether or not Jesus has been raised from the dead by the power of God. No, you don't have to crucify your intellect to believe. It's a real, rational faith. And God has spoken to us clearly through the scriptures so that we may believe in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, point two, the power of God. As Mary, Mary, and Salome approached the tomb of Jesus, filled with grief in their blocked-up hearts, they needed the stone rolled away the physical stone rolled away to get to Jesus' body, and they needed the stone in their hearts to be rolled away in order to believe in his resurrection. We all need this stone rolled away from our hearts in order to believe the truth. When the women looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back already. And these were not the ones who rolled away the stone. It was very large. It was extraordinarily heavy. And Jesus' disciples could not have rolled the stone away because they were not expecting a resurrection. There's no way they could have ever thought to fake a resurrection they didn't believe in. The Jewish leaders who had Jesus crucified would not have wanted to open the tomb to parade his dead, they would have only wanted to open the tomb to parade his dead body through the streets of Jerusalem in victory over his death. In Matthew 27, to corroborate this, we learn that the Jewish leaders sealed the tomb, they put a, like a, a, like a, a sealed so that if it was open, they would know it was open. They put a seal over the tomb on the Sabbath, breaking the Sabbath law, by the way, and had Pilate set a Roman guard 
to make sure the disciples couldn't get to the body in order to fake a resurrection, which I think is actually kind of interesting. That the enemies of Jesus remembered that he predicted a death and a third-day resurrection, but they didn't believe any notion of it, and they anticipated that the disciples would have wanted to fake one, which they didn't. The Roman guards uh, that these Jewish leaders set up would have been executed for tampering with the tomb of Jesus and his body. So this is significant since Mark tells us that the the women saw the stone already rolled back from a distance, and they encountered no Roman guards present there. The Roman guards had already gone back to the Jewish leaders going, uh, Jesus' body's gone, we fainted, something happened, the stone rolled away, and he's not there anymore. Matthew again corroborates this. He says that the stone was rolled away, not by the women, not by the Jews, not by the disciples, and certainly not by the Roman guards. In chapter 28, Matthew records that there was a great earthquake For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. We see that same description of the man sitting in the tomb in Mark's gospel. And so these guards, they feared and trembled and became like dead men. Okay, so who opened the tomb? The God of the living opened the tomb. And it wasn't to let the resurrected Jesus out, but to stand as a testimony to the world. First to the women, to the disciples, and then to the world, you and me, that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead. It was to stand as a testimony and an invitation for them to enter and see the place where they laid him. Jesus was not dead in the tomb, but alive and on the move as he was so often characterized by the Gospel of Mark. Mark remarks that, Mark remarks, that Jesus was often on the move. He was about his kingdom work after the resurrection, and he was gathering his sheep and rolling the stones away from their hearts. That's what Jesus was doing after he got out of the tomb. When the women encountered this angel in the tomb, they had the same reaction as the Roman guards. They were alarmed. Where's Jesus? Why isn't he here? Who took his body? So they don't believe that he's resurrected just yet. Who is this terrifying creature in the tomb? This is the same kind of reaction that all human beings recorded throughout the scriptures had when they encountered supernatural beings. Alarm, terror, shock, fear. This alarming is a shock and reaction typical, so typical throughout the scriptures. The messenger from heaven then clearly identifies once they enter the tomb, he says, hey, don't be alarmed. Good comfort, angel. Thank you. Don't be alarmed. Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified, you were seeking this Jesus of Nazareth, this real historical Jesus of Nazareth, as the very one these women were looking for. That's who he notes. Okay? There is a historical death of Christ that we have noted throughout the scriptures, and even Tacitus, again, notes that Christus suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilate. So therefore, the real space-time history testifies that Jesus of Nazareth had, in fact, died on the cross. And the women were going to the tomb on that Sunday morning, knowing by their own eyewitnesses that he was dead. But he tells them, that's the Jesus you're looking for? Guess what? He's not there. But before we get to that point, the New City Catechism, uh, a newer catechism that's come out, asks this question about the death of Christ on the cross. Why was it necessary? I want to sequester with you for a moment, why was it necessary for Christ the Redeemer to die? Why did he have to die? That's a good question. 
Was it some cosmic accident that the corrupt religious government or religious system and the corrupt uh, empire of the Romans uh, that condemned this innocent teacher about, uh, who was all about love and compassion, was it some accident or was it something more significant? As Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane the night before the crucifixion, he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup for me, this cup of God's wrath, yet not what I will, but what you will. The crucifixion was the definite foreplan and will of God the Father and was willingly obeyed by the Son. Jesus would go to the cross to drink the cup of God's wrath against sin and sinful nature. That's why he died on the cross. Our righteous and holy God uh, declares to us through the prophet Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, the purpose for which Christ would come into the world. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I tell you, friends, one sin, no matter how small, I've said it before and I'll say it a million times, no matter how small, is worth its weight in eternal condemnation. One careless word. Think about your life and how many sins you have racked up since yesterday. It's worth its weight in eternal condemnation. We have rebelled against the supreme majesty, raising our tiny fists and our creator's holy face, clinging to whatever possession of power or authority or prominence that we want. And God punished sin, uh, and he must punish sin, if he is to be a good and just God. And the consequence for sin, my friends, is death. That's the consequence for sin. So, Since we can never repay God for sin and yet live, Jesus came as an unblemished, perfect lamb to die in our place. He didn't die for his own sake. He didn't deserve to die. He came as our substitute, even though he didn't deserve to die. When he cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me in Mark 15? He was literally cut off from the love and mercy of the Father, suffering the agony of hell. He suffered the wrath and judgment of God as a sin offering on our behalf. And with Jesus' last breath, Mark says that the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The barrier between us and God, God tore in two himself because of the blood of Christ. But the promised Messiah did not remain a slain sacrificial lamb. God also declared through Isaiah, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, those of us who are heirs according to the promise, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see light and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. God promised through the prophets of old that Jesus would be a suffering servant raised from the dead so that his perfect obedience would be counted to us. We're righteous before God because of Christ. At the cross, Jesus takes our sins and pays a price for us on our behalf. At the resurrection, God transfers Jesus' perfect righteousness and obedience to those who trust him as their Savior. Our own works are not enough to bridge the chasm between us and God. It is the righteousness of Christ that is given to us. It is an alien and foreign righteousness that does not belong to us. It is God's righteousness that is given to us that we stand just before God. As a trustworthy witness of the resurrection 
and a trustworthy messenger from heaven. The angel declares to the women of Jesus, he has risen, he is not here. The way the Greek text, text is written indicates a passive verb tense, and so the translation ought to actually be not that Jesus has been risen uh, or has ra- been raised, but that he has been raised by God. He has been raised. The power of God raised Jesus up from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. That's the biblical witness that we have. R.C. Sproul comments on this verse saying, God did not have to accept that payment of Jesus on the cross. But when he raised Christ from the dead, God declared to the whole world that our justification has been secured. For he had accepted completely the atonement that Jesus offered for his people. The Father who sent Jesus to the cross also brought him out of the grave for our justification. By the power of God, Jesus is alive. By the grace of God in Christ, so are we. Amen. Salvation and belief in Christ are thoroughly the work of God in Christ Jesus. He is the Son of God. Jesus is vindicated and verified as the Son of God because of his resurrection. Mark sets out to prove this point from the beginning of his gospel, and Jesus displayed this through his works and miracles throughout, over disease and death and sin. And he certainly has authority to forgive sins, and his authority over all God's creation has its climax in the resurrection. If the centurion can declare by the way that Christ died that this is the Son of God, surely then we must know very clearly that God declares, indeed, that by his resurrection, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Listen to him. Jesus bears all the authority in heaven and earth, so we better heed his words. Jesus begins his ministry in the beginning of the Gospel of Mark by proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This kingdom has come in power at the resurrection of Christ. And if you have not yet believed in Jesus, your Savior, repent of your sins and draw near to the throne of grace. If you believe in him, repent of your sin and continue to draw near to the throne of grace. And it is the dearest and tenderest of mercies by God that Peter is singled out in the message from heaven. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Peter had deserted Jesus out of fear in the presence of a little servant girl. But he was not deserted by his resurrected Savior. Just before Jesus predicted Peter's threefold denial in Mark 14, he predicted and promised you will all fall away, for it is written, I will, be sh- I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Jesus promises as the good shepherd to gather his lost sheep, including Peter and you and me. We are all sheep gone astray, needing this good shepherd to regather us into his sheepfold. My beloved friends, there is no sin so vile you can commit that Christ could not have paid for in full on the cross. Not a single one. You need only to listen to him, repent, and believe in the gospel. And as surely as he promised his disciples to meet them in Galilee, he was good for his word, restoring Peter in Galilee. He is good for his word, able to restore you and me by his death and resurrection. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the good news we are commanded to tell the whole world of dead souls. Commanded to carry this good news to the disciples and Peter, the women at the tomb responded by fleeing. 
They fled, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The Greek term used for astonishment, which these women had, is the derivative that we have for ecstasy. That's the only Greek word my wife will let me use, okay? This is the only Greek word that I'm going to use. Ecstasy, which means a displacement of the normal state of mind and a blended state of fear and wonderment. Throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus performed great signs and wonders, healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and forgiving sins. And the typical response to that was the same astonishment, amazement, and the fear these women had. In the presence of a holy God, this is the normal and appropriate response of imperfect creatures. So, of course, the formerly grieving women were literally shaking with joy, wonder, shock, terror, and emotional distress. They were the first witnesses of the greatest act of power God had ever wrought in human history. That's why it's appropriate that Mark ends at they were afraid. Glory to God in the highest. Jesus is alive now. I think it's worth noting here, too, that women in the first century were considered lacking in credibility with their witness. And in fact, they were concerned, uh, but I think it's important to note that the gospel writers include the women as the first witnesses of the resurrected Christ, not because they're trying to tell some fancy story with a great ending, glamorous, like all of the Greek myths or the stories we hear today, but he places them as the primary witnesses because it actually happened. Because that's the truth. These women who had no credibility whatsoever in the court of law in the first century were the primary witnesses. And if they were trying to fake a resurrection, this would be the worst mistake they could make in the Gospels. The worst one. But it's true. And so they record it as such. These women, before going to the disciples were choked up with fear at the glorious power of God and overwhelmed with the good news that their beloved master was actually alive. In silent wonder, they must have contemplated, could this be true? Is he really alive? Do our ears and eyes deceive us? What could this mean that Jesus is alive? Will we see him again as he promised? Would Peter and the disciples even believe us if we told them this good news? My beloved friends, does this good news overwhelm you? It's true. Does it overwhelm you? Has the Lord rolled away the stone from your heart? Do you believe this good news? I do devotions in my classroom every morning before we start class for about five minutes or so, and I get very enthusiastic, as you probably see me doing right now. I get squeaky in my voice. I flap my arms. If I had wings, I'd be hovering off the ground. Okay, some of my students actually laugh at and mock me while I give a word of devotions. And when I do this, that's their response sometimes. But that can't rob me of my joy in Christ. Because this is the truth. And I want to know, do you get this excited about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God? And Jonathan Edwards gives us a very poignant statement. How great cause have we therefore to be humbled to the dust that we are no more affected If this doesn't fill you with a great joy, you have a heart of stone that the Lord God needs to roll away. Don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice today. So though for a time Mary, Mary, and Salome held this good news out uh, in for fear and joy, 
The other gospel records record the testimony of the disciples and Peter. And as expected, the disciples didn't believe it until Jesus opened their eyes to the scriptures. He rolled a stone away from their hearts. He revealed the scriptures that he indeed is what all of the scriptures proclaim. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the purpose of history. The cross and the resurrection is the turning point of history. And Jesus opened their eyes to that, and they still didn't quite believe out of joy. Not hatred, but out of joy. They were just, they couldn't believe it. But Jesus opened their eyes, and they believed, and he commissioned them as witnesses and commanded them to proclaim to all the nations repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And when he did open their eyes, this Peter, who was so terrified of a little servant girl, when he went out and proclaimed the gospel to all the world, these men who proclaimed the truth turned the world upside down. In fact, they were no longer afraid for their lives, but they preached into the mouth of hell itself. And Peter was crucified for his faith. Many of the apostles were killed because of this truth. There is a verifiable truth of the resurrection because these men, if they were faking a resurrection, would never have dared to die for such a fabrication. But they preached the good news because this is the only way men shall live. This is the good news. Peter says we're born again to a living hope. And all of our suffering refines our faiths until the day of salvation, the the outcome of our faith. And Mark gives this gospel to his original audience who were congregating in catacombs in the Rome itself, Babylon, the seat of Satan at that time, giving them this good news not long after the events took place to encourage them in the face of persecution that if Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead, then death has no hold on you believers either. Go tell the good news to a world that so desperately needs to hear it. For you and for me, go tell the good news to your neighbor who so desperately needs to hear it. We will face opposition. We will face persecution. We will face ridicule. We may even face martyrdom. But we have been born again to a living hope because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you and for me. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time when Christ returns again to inaugurate finally and fully his kingdom in power. Will you go tell this good news in joy or will you keep it to yourself in fear? I want you to consider the significance that, as Pastor John reminded me the other day, there is a flesh and blood, God-man, Jesus Christ, reigning in heaven right now. The disciples witnessed him in the flesh. 500 other witnesses witnessed him resurrected in the flesh before his ascension. He is alive with us right now as we worship and hear his word proclaimed in all the world, everywhere around the world. People are preaching the gospel because 2,000 years later, Jesus is still reigning, alive, and no fear No unbelief, no opposition can overcome the purposes of God. Not even these women who kept it into themselves for a time. Nothing can stop the kingdom of God from advancing. Because it is God himself who brings it to fulfillment. We worship with our brothers and sisters who have gone before us to glory. Today, now, 
worshiping the Lamb who was slain, but yet risen. So let us hold fast to this good news that our sins are forgiven because of the precious blood of Jesus, and we are counted righteous before God because of the glorious life of Jesus. And let us faithfully hold out our witness to, the, uh, to this truth as brilliant lights in this dark world. It's good news not because it's a glamorous story, but because real people were really affected by the real truth. And the gospel of Mark ends unexpectedly because the good news was unexpected. The good news is overwhelming because it's simple. An unexpected victory by a real, simple, unexpected Savior. Amen.